0: Welcome to the Engage Midwife Podcast.
1: This is Kara. And this is Missy. I'm hey, excited Kara. to be here today. I know, and this is a fantastic topic that an, a, a listener actually sent into us. So that's really fun because that doesn't happen that often. No, whenever we get feedback or uh, episode ideas, we definitely want to take advantage of it. So this is a that's good one. That's right. So I should actually try to um read to you what she wrote.
0: Which is a good, while Missy's looking this up, good time to say, if you want to send us ideas, definitely reach out to us. You can get a hold of us via Facebook or Instagram, um, delivered exam prep. And you can also email us and our emails are really easy as well. It's missy at delivered exam prep.com or Kara. At deliveredexamprep.com.
1: Okay, so I'm going to give you Andrea's message. It says, I'm a midwifery student in Wisconsin. I'm a huge fan of your podcast. I listened to your podcast about six is the new four. In the podcast, you mentioned the timing of potentially rupturing someone's bag. Have you done a podcast more specifically on that topic? If not, I would love to hear um, your thoughts on timing or perhaps resources you have come across in practice. Thanks so much. Love your podcast so much. All right, Andrea. So thank you so much for sending us an amazing podcast topic. And I think Kara and I are going to talk about rupture of membranes in a bigger context today of what do we do in the intrapartum setting that are interventions. And I, and, and I guess the the context of this is... Everything that you do in the intrapartum setting is an intervention.
0: Right. I mean, it's kind of like that idea of nursing orders versus physician orders back in the day. Like so much of what we did as nurses were interventions that had an evidence base to them. We just did them and thought they were nursing. We didn't think of them as interventions. Same thing here. We do lots of things in the intrapartum that people may not think are interventions, but they are.
1: Yeah, and and amniotomy is just one of them. Yes. And
0: I think this is one of those topics that I have seen profound change during my career as a nurse and midwife of uh timing of ruptured
1: membranes. Uh so do you want to start I- there or do you want to start um with a, a bigger conversation? Well, let's start with a bigger conversation
0: because I we we probably could talk for a whole hour just about ruptured membranes, but um
1: I think the bigger conversation is probably more important. Well, okay, so let me let me give you a little bit of background because you, everybody who listens to our podcast knows I work in an academic health center, and there is a lot of like I call them checklist things. Right? Did she have adequate ripening? Has she had a Foley balloon? You know, should we rupture membranes at next check? It's like it feels very much scripted. Like these are the things that should go down, and. Just like when there's an emergency in any intrapartum unit, you know, you get called because your heart tones are down, or you go to a room because your heart tones are down, and people want to start doing interventions, right? Giving a fluid bolus, turning off the pit, changing position. I think um, there's also a checklist that goes along with that. And I, and there are sort of, I have two thoughts about those two completely separate things. One of my thoughts is, is, I agree that there's a menu versus a checklist of things that are available to us when we are working to induce or augment someone. So that's one thing. I think changing the mindset of these are all the things we have to do into these are all the things that are available to us. That's, the, that's my big thought about. Um, and that goes back, I think, to what you were saying is how we used to do things, which was everybody got their water broke at two centimeters and everybody was on, you know, 20 of pit by noon. If they were there for a morning induction, is that, was that your, uh, yeah. Was that your initial thought? Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, my goal as an RN was to make sure that IV was going, the pit was started before the physicians came in in the morning and went room to room breaking water. And we would do it at fingertip with an amni or one centimeter and they'd be chasing the patient up the bed. Um, it's just, it's kind of crazy to think about.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I completely, I remember that. I just, I remember that that was like a thing. And if you didn't have, oh, you better have that done before you're before Dr. So-and-so gets here, Yeah, you know, they're going to be upset if they're not on, you know, 20 a pit by lunchtime when they come to right. check them or, I right. mean, it like the whole thing. Right. So, well, and
0: as you were talking about that checklist, I think Yes. I have definitely also worked in an academic setting. The patients were higher risk. We were doing lots of interventions because we were oftentimes inducing labor. I think all of these things are maybe it's good to think about all the options, like you said, the menu. Um, But our menu may look different if it's spontaneous labor and we're expectantly managing versus actively managing the labor.
1: Yeah, and so I think if you're a provider and you have been in a checklist mentality, that maybe just switching your mindset yeah. to to a to a menu or an options, uh, you know, when you go to dinner, you don't order everything on the menu,
0: right? Um, I
1: want to sometimes. I know, I know, but we don't. I know we don't. Right? We don't and we should be thinking about our our options during our intrapartum course just like that things that we can pick and choose from that are best for our patients.
0: Ooh, now that you've said that, I kind of like the idea of like there's a reason we don't order everything on the menu. Cost,
1: yes. Right?
0: There's a cost to that. And there is and, a cost if we do too many interventions in labor.
1: Yeah, and it's just not money cost.
0: Right, exactly. Well, that was, yeah, yeah.
1: And also, and and this is going to dovetail into a whole different podcast episode, but, like, when are we doing enough and when are we doing too much and when is enough in certain populations? And there's just a whole, like, uh, you know, continuing conversation about when to do what and how much of what. So uh, this is just a little teaser that we're going to record a session on um, induction of labor in women with obesity. And I think that conversation is interesting because I was just saying, we don't utilize our tools, I think the best way we can in that population. So it'll be interesting to talk about that. So let me bring up the second part of that about interventions in general and then we can kind of pull out some individual interventions. But um I we uh when we get when we do go to rooms and emergencies, tones are down, whatever. I find it really interesting that every, you know, everybody's tachycardic, right? Like every provider is like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, what's next? And even if they don't look like that, their heart rate and their brain is saying, what would I do next? Right. Right. Remember that you have to give interventions time to work. This is my biggest pet peeve. We're like rolling people every 10 seconds and we're giving a bolus and chasing with TURB and doing all of these things. And I'm like, you have to give a baby 30 seconds at least for any intervention to have an effect on heart rate. You roll them to the right, you wait for 30 seconds. It seems painful. It does. Waiting 30 Agreed. seconds for anything seems painful, but it's necessary. It also depends where you are in the contraction. Like,
0: let's wait for the next contraction. I mean, that's even longer, but I hear you. I
1: You have to give it time to work. So that is just a little clinical pearl I wanted to put out there. Like, If you're yes. doing interventions because something's not going the way you want it to, your patient's having variables, you know, they're having repetitive lates. There's all the things I want you to like, give it a chance to like do the things. So that's just a little asterisk of this conversation around interventions. So let's break this down. Kara. Sounds good. What are interventions that we do that maybe people don't think are interventions? I think you led with a couple.
0: Um, you you started us off with ruptured membranes, right? So when to do that, and then you mentioned a couple of others like position change, a fluid bolus, um, some of those different things. Those are interventions as well.
1: Yeah. Also, it, placing internal monitors. Yes, that does not. Everybody thinks, oh, that that's not an intervention. There's no risk involved with that. That is absolutely false. Right there's definitely risk, but there's
0: also sometimes really overwhelming benefits. And so it may allow you more mobility actually to have internals, if that makes sense. Um, Yeah. All of those different things are interventions.
1: Or an opportunity to give someone more time to make change with an IEPC. Yeah. So I think patience is, (laughs) it seems like, when we talk about internal monitors as an intervention
0: yeah
1: i do think we need to consider the risk benefit mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. what is the benefit which one of the ones you said like with an fse is mobility right you don't have to worry about being in a certain position so that your baby um will stay on the monitor but we have other interventions for that right we can use things like monica we can use those wireless, right? If you have Um, them, yes. Yeah. If you have them available to you, you can use those kinds of things. Um, You can also do intermittent auscultation, which, you know, that's a whole, we could have a whole conversation about when that's appropriate, because I think that's another intervention that we should be thinking about in low-risk women. Right. Right.
0: We Um, overuse, there's a lot of, interventions that we overuse and continuous fetal monitoring is one of them.
1: Um, Yes. And there's a whole boatload of, of literature that says that continuous fetal monitoring does not improve outcomes. Right. Right. So if we're blowing your mind today, it's okay. There's a lot of background to this conversation. And if you look in the literature, you will find it.
0: You know, I think one of the things that really changed my thinking on a lot of the practices that I was used to seeing, and particularly uh, amniotomy, was I think it was back, was it like 2012 or so, that the pearls of midwifery came out from ACNM. And it was an evidence-based list of the pearls, the things that were true about midwifery care were very evidence-based that were supportive of physiologic birth. And one of them was talking about delayed amniotomy. And it I love I really I, I don't think this is a surprise to anybody that knows me well. I love a well-timed amniotomy. Um and so I kind of had to question myself about am I doing it too early? And it was good to take a look at the evidence. But Pearls and midwifery also talk about fetal monitoring. They talk about the use of hydrotherapy or water. They talk about movement. Those things are really important, and there's a really good evidence base to support them.
1: So, if you are an ACNM member or have access to the ACNM website, you can actually download the document that Kara is talking about. Yep. Um, it's an it's a PowerPoint presentation that was copyrighted by ACNM in 2019, and it really talks about physiologic birth and remembering that women have the innate ability to give birth, and that 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 is an experience that they will carry with them. And so, I'm looking through some of these because um, Kara just talked about things that we overuse, so things that are overused that are interventions are things like induction. Continuous monitoring, like Kara said, routine amniotomy, Um, repeat C section is on this list. So that's a Mm -hmm. whole conversation about VBAC. And maybe that's another podcast episode because there's a lot of controversy around VBAC. And, you know, another thing is like uh, how strict our labor parameters are. And I think people are trying to be more fluid with that. But then things that we that are underused interventions are like, we're always starving patients. So nice. oral nutrition and labor, intermittent auscultation, um, non-directed pushing, right? Um, delayed cord clamping, those kinds of things. So I think that this is a really nice overview of all of those things and the research I think that goes behind those. So if you're if this if this can talk about physiologic birth and you know, interventions in the intrapartum period is really interesting to you. I would suggest you download this PowerPoint. It's long. It's like 70 slides, but it also will give you all of the references that you would need to take to your unit to be like, Hey, let's talk about this thing. And honestly, you can't change the whole thing all at once. It's usually one intervention at a time. Can you get an intermittent auscultation protocol approved? Can you get a Oral nutrition protocol approved. My next, my next thing is <laughs> that I really want on my unit is oral, not buccal, oral side attack for induction of labor. Mm-hmm. There's really good research about that and how it works and how it works well. Um, so anyway, pick something on that list of things that are interventions that are, you know, underused in the intrapartum period and run with that.
0: I used, um, so that resource, it's good to hear that it was updated, I think you said in 2019. um, And I think they do take a look at it every few years to see if there's new literature that should be added to it. But um, I took that and there was, I think, um, a little bookmark or there was a list and I created a little pocket pal Um, for midwifery week and had them laminated and um, handed them out to all the OB residents and the midwifery students and the nurses. And it was fun because people would be like, okay, I'm going to need to know more about this one. And I would point to a certain pearl on the list. And it was fun to have conversations around normalcy and physiologic birth and how Even when we're inducing someone, there are things that we can do that can be more supportive of normal birth patterns, normal, you know, trying to mimic normal labor, even when we're intervening.
1: So let's go back to this rupture of membrane conversation. Yeah. Well-timed amniotomy. Tell people what you mean when you say that.
0: To me, it's when someone is in good labor um, and I still think I I don't necessarily need them to be six centimeters, but contracting well and making change Um, and the head is well applied and you've got that bulgy bag and the cervix is super thin and it's like, okay, we were making good change, making good change, but it just seems like something like i just need something to get over this little like she's so close um i think she'll be in transition if we just break water that kind of idea um sometimes a well timed amniotomy there is the thing that will make labor speed up just a bit so that she can get through it but there's times that that will make things more
1: uncomfortable and yes so more i'll intense. give you my i'll give you my the two things I say all the time in practice that I want my residents to be able to like recite when they graduate and go off to be like attending someplace. One of them is there is physics involved in a bag of water. So there is hydrostatic pressure in the bag of water that causes dilation. It is a the bag of water acts like a dilating wedge through the cervix and I want everybody to sit and think about this. When somebody contracts and the uterus is contracting, it is pushing the bag of water down into the cervix and the head against the cervix. So what happens is is that bag of water helps to dilate the cervix because of the pressure that's exerted on the cervix by the bag during contractions. So Until five centimeters. Yeah. And then the surface area of the cervix and the fetal head is too big to really exert any pressure that's making a difference with the bag of water. So, for example, in somebody who's being induced, particularly somebody who's epiduralized. Yes. After five centimeters, the bag of water is just in the way. Right? Also this is in the consideration of if they're GBS positive that they've had adequate treatment, right. If there's no indications that say we shouldn't be rupturing somebody's membranes, et cetera. Right. Right. Um, Also that another thought that just spurred in my head is this idea of choreo and I want to get there. So I will make a note to make sure I get back to that. Okay. Um. But so the, the idea of a dilating wedge, right? The bag of water has a purpose. It's to help be a dilating wedge in the cervix until five centimeters. That's the first thing. The second part of this is in somebody who's going unmedicated, when you contract against your bag of water, it's more like contracting against a water balloon, right? It's muscle against bag, against baby, right? Right. In somebody who's unmedicated, if you break their bag of water, then they are now contracting uterus against baby. And I say, you're contracting against all your baby's bones and muscles, and that's not going to feel the same as contracting against your bag of water. So when I think about rupture of membranes, I always consider are you epiduralized? Are you planning to be epiduralized? Or are you planning a natural delivery? Because that helps me make a decision about rupture membranes.
0: Well, and you know, there's information that would say that breaking water does not speed up labor. But I think a lot of us would say that if you've got a good contraction pattern, sometimes it's just the thing you need to speed up labor, right? Like, I don't really think of it slowing anything down generally um, because I don't want to do it too early. I want to do it when someone's got a nice contraction pattern. I agree with you that sometimes it makes it more intense, but it also may make labor shorter. And so the the intensity is more, but the labor is so much shorter that they're like, yeah, please go ahead and break my water. But I think it's having that informed conversation about what will breaking the water do what are the risks? What are the benefits? And being able to have that conversation with your patient, let them make the decision.
1: Yeah, I have also been thinking more and more about this idea of choreo with prolonged rupture of membranes, and mm-hmm. doing some looking into the literature about that. And because I work in an academic health center, and everybody's like, "Is there a literature that supports this thing that you want to do?" Probably, I. I mean, I don't dream up a lot of great ideas on my own. It's probably that I have read it someplace and I think it's worth trying. Um, And I've been reading a lot about choreo because I've noticed an uptick of patients who get infected an hour after they're ruptured or two hours after they're ruptured. And I'm like, what is going on? And there is a growing body of evidence that talks about intra-amniotic choreo. Which is the idea that somebody doesn't have to have ruptured membranes to have chorio in in their um, in their chorion and their amnion. You don't have to be ruptured for that. Yeah, that there can be ascending bacteria. Right, that's the proposed pathophysiology of chorio is ascending genital tract bacteria. Correct, and that that ascending bacteria, as the cervix starts to open, can get to the amniotic sac and cause choreo prior to rupture of membranes.
0: That feels true to me um, as I think about, you know, being in this career long enough and seeing babies that were born with GBS and they were born by C-section, you know, planned C-section or seeing infection. I don't think that bag of water that we thought was so protective has been as protective as we thought it was. And the idea Uh, that you could have an infection um, before rupture
1: of membranes makes sense. Uh, I, I mean, I a thousand percent agree because here's what's been happening as I've been watching babies for this last 18 months in this big academic health center is I'll see a baby get tachycardic and be like, why are they so tachycardic. And then I'll see a mom get tachycardic and I'll be like, why are they so tachycardic? And then I've met criteria because I have a baby that's tachycardic and a mom that's tachycardic, even without a, fe- a fever, Right. To call that choreo. And and if somebody, so there are lots of other reasons for fever, right? Somebody could be dehydrated. I mean, there are tachycardia. There are lots of other reasons for tachycardia. Mom could be dehydrated. She could be anxious. She could be in pain. There are all kinds of things that can lead to tachycardia. But when you're thinking about choreo, right? You're either thinking about maternal fever, maternal tachycardia, or fetal tachycardia. And two of those three things to meet criteria for choreo. And so honestly and the nurses think i'm crazy but whenever i check somebody and i say to them like her vagina is hot i don't mean it like it's hot i mean like it is temperature on fire and for me that means like the honestly we take rectal temperatures for a reason right because it's core temperature yes your vagina is pretty much your core right just like your rectum is and if your vagina is hot you are working on some sort of infection I've always and thought that you were so right. And they get that core temperature goes up before you'll
0: see it. Um, especially, it's so hard to get temps in labor, right? Because they're breathing a lot. And if they're taking in ice chips and that, I completely 100% agree about the hot vagina.
1: I also make my nurses take axillary temps because of all the things you just said about their mouths. Yeah. yeah. I would love to see somebody do a study on vaginal temperature. How do we get that IRB approved? I mean, honestly. I don't know
0: because, you know, we try to do less and less intervention in the vagina, but. Um, but we put our hands in there. It's been, and I've always felt that even from my labor and delivery nursing days, that you'd be like something, mm, she's going to spike a fever here in a little bit. You just, before just you would see it. anything else. And then I agree, you'd get that fetal tachycardia and maternal tachycardia and.
1: ugh. Oh, it's a so, base, I, so to sort of round this back to rupture of membranes, I think obviously choreo is some is a is a unintended outcome of rupture of membranes, but I don't think that should be the only thing we think about when we consider amniotomy.
0: No, yeah. I mean, yeah, I agree with you. It is a consideration, but not the only
1: thing. When else do we need to rupture membranes? I'll give you another good one and then maybe it'll give you time to think about one. Okay. If we absolutely need internal monitoring. Yes. For whatever reason, we're having D cells, we're not, we're not, we can't correlate contractions with fetal heart rate. If we're having a lot of trouble tracing a baby, if there is an absolute indication for internal monitoring, great reason to rupture membranes. Agreed. None of those things that I just said, though, should be routine. Right. All right. Do you have another, like, this is why we absolutely should rupture membranes.
0: No, I mean, if if the membranes haven't been ruptured um, in labor, it can be nice to know right before delivery for your, especially for like your NICU team, if you think you might have meconium or something like that. Um, how we manage meconium is vastly different now than what it was when I started my nursing career 25 years ago. Um, so is it as intense if there's meconium in the fluid? No, we see how babies do, right? We don't have to suction everybody on the perineum and delete them and do all
1: these different things and intubate. Oh my gosh. You just said delete and every, like every nurse in our age group is going to be like, yep, we did that. Yeah, we did that.
0: Thankfully, I was in the generation that we didn't delete with our mouths.
1: Oh no, but. Go look that up. If
0: you're a young thing, um, all of that to say, it is nice to know the fluids clear or if you have meconium, um, right. If if you have any concerns.
1: Yep. Um, I, yeah. Oh my gosh. I'm thinking about like all the things that you were just saying about, like, we don't have to sterilize needles either. My gram used to talk about that, like sterilizing needles.
0: I'm really glad that we don't check people, check their cervix, cervical dilation at rectally. Um,
1: oh,
0: yeah. Back in the day or, that was nurses had to do
1: rectal exams to check the cervix. Gross. No. Yeah. We have vaginas. That's so weird. I know. Um, is there anything else that we're missing about this conversation on rupture of membranes? I feel like this is a good conversation. No, I I do think it is,
0: and I appreciate that you mentioned the internal monitoring because I do feel like a lot of times it's related to that, particularly if we're doing an induction because of oligohydramnios, or um, you've got some situation where you're having difficulty tracing. You maybe have a growth restricted kiddo, or you mentioned obesity in labor earlier. There's different situations where internals are really nice to have, and. Thinking about what are some contraindications to that, mostly just infection, really, like HIV, hep C is when I have traditionally seen that we really try to avoid um, any internal monitors. Um, But it is good to think about when we need that, um, doing it at the right time, doing it um, when it's necessary, not just willy nilly. Not everyone that gets induced needs internal monitors, that kind of idea.
1: Or rupture membranes.
0: Yeah. I think when we had the shortage of fetal scalp electrodes, <laughs> was that like three or four years ago, it feels like. Yeah. Um, it really made you think about who did
1: you need them for? We ran out of hooks a couple of, like uh, earlier this year, like Amnihook. Oh, funny. And they funny. Would be like then the nurses or um and then it was like well we have other ways to rupture membranes right do you know the other thing that we ran out of that was crazy was Foley bulbs and they were like you have to go to the nurse the charge nurse and you have to plead your case as to why you need a Foley bulb for your patient oh how funny so funny to me
0: just full fo- just the Foley bulbs not the kits. like was it because yeah you were like doing so many inductions or ripening yeah Yeah.
1: Ripening. Not like the cook kits that all come together, but like the actual, just like the Foley catheters that we use for putting Foley bulbs in. That's so funny. Yeah. I think that you said something a minute ago that I want to like change the language on. You said when you, you have some populations of patients where internals would be nice to have. Mm -hmm. And I want to think about it, not as nice to have, but like as a, Like a necessary thing to be able to utilize for management of our patients. Because I think nice to have is one thing, necessary for the care of our patients is another. Yeah, good point. Yeah. And it's, I mean, you and I talk about language all the time and how like the words that we say matter. And so, yeah. Well, and
0: you, you know, when we were talking about if you're having difficulty tracing, how many patients have we had? where they will talk after their delivery about the part that was so upsetting to them was the nurse having to like hunt for the heart tones and handhold the monitor in place. And it was so uncomfortable because they needed so much pressure and all of those different things. An internal monitor that would have released that pressure on her belly or allowed her to change position would have been so much kinder, um, for the patient. And so you're right. I I shouldn't have said, yes, we can get the heart rate if we handhold and keep her in one position. And that like is horrible for her labor and horrible for her experience, but, um, it would have been better to have internal monitors in that type of situation.
1: Correct. Gee, yeah. I do not disagree at all.
0: I've also um, had patients where I could get them even with an IUPC and a scalp lead, I could have them sitting on the uh, exercise ball next to the bed. They could stand and sway, um, leaning over the bed. I mean, there were way more positions I could help them get in with internal monitors than I could ever have done with external, just because of whatever their labor position, I mean, whatever the situation was, maybe they were polyhydramnios that had so much fluid. Of course, if they were ruptured, that would fix that situation as well. Um but there's lots of different things that you can do. We sh- internal monitors.
1: Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. All right. So I think we've adequately probably covered amniotomy. Do you agree? Do you? Can I ask this because
0: this has always been a theory of mine, and I want to know your opinion? I swear that sometimes putting an IUPC in almost acts like a dilating wedge as well. Sometimes I you don't know, disagree like that with patient that? that like you put it the IUPC in and then. I mean, the, you thought they were dilating. I mean, you thought they were contracting well anyway, but you're like, we just need to prove it one way or the other. And then that's like the thing that makes them change. I swear, I feel like sometimes it does something to put a pressure somewhere.
1: That Well, here would be my theory about it. And this is something <laughs> that I feel strongly about, which is just interesting that you have brought this up because it just has happened recently, is we had a patient in our unit. It was like a grand multip. I think it was like her sixth baby, and she was stuck at five, 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 five. Her body has done this five other times. There's no reason she should be stuck at five. Yeah. And I was like, can I just check her? Like my residents had been checking her. It's not that I didn't trust that she was five. I was like, let me just feel what's happening. Oh, I totally
0: get that. I just want to get and my hand in there and feel what's
1: I going- went in there and I was kind of feeling for position and and you know, synclitism. but I also stuck my finger all the way to my first knuckle between the head and the lower uterine segment and just gave it like a really good, like three s- sweeps around at five centimeters. And she delivered, she went from five to complete and delivered in like 40 minutes. Now the residents swear I put Pitocin on my finger. I did not, but sometimes the prostaglandin release that comes from a sweep in the intrapartum period can actually do a lot of good. And I think when we put an IUPC in, it gives that lower uterine segment and that cervix some friction that may release some prostaglandins that would cause that kind of dilation. Now, that was not a one-off trick either. That literally has happened probably three times in the last six months. I think the sweep or it sounds
0: to me like that was actually a strip. Um, whether you call it stripping the membranes or sweeping the membranes, that is a midwife intervention. I but feel these like- these are
1: women who are ruptured. So it's really yes. not a, like when we think about it in the office, like stripping membranes, you're like putting your finger between the cervix, lower uterine segment and the bag of water, right? right. To get that right. to release. These right. are women who are ruptured. This oh, is I like, know, but there's, but it's that massage. Right.
0: It's that prostaglandin release. You're right. Yeah.
1: Yep. Yeah. And the, the residents laughed so hard. They were like, she had been five forever. And I was like, I don't know. I didn't do anything Also, special. I'm kind
0: of someone that'll stretch a bit too. Like if I'm in there in exactly that situation, you've got a grand tip that she's done this before. Let's, let's try to help things out a little bit.
1: Yes. Yes. So that's funny. It. I had another like sort of practice related thing that we were talking. We were talking about rupture of membranes. I had, this is funny. We were literally running a, tri- um, a labor unit in triage the other day. Like we were so busy everywhere. Every room was full. Every postpartum room was full. It was seven triage beds. I had people laboring all over the place. But I have had these multiparous women come in and. Um, be nine centimeters and then be 10 centimeters and just deliver in triage. That night I had two, almost a third in 13 hours deliveries in triage. Wow! And the nurses were like, I was, "The this particular patient was pushing and I was like, I would like a hook. And they were like, why don't you just deliver in call? And I said, this is why. She is unmedicated and she is not listening to any of us to tell her how to push this baby out. And what will happen is she will push with everything that she has because she is feeling everything and we will all get an amniotic fluid bath. <laughs> Well-timed amniotomy, right? Yeah. In between contractions, I could rupture her membranes, let that water come out slowly so that when she delivers in a fit of pain and fury, right, we all do not get an amniotic fluid bath. One of Your my medical just
0: made me think of like flashbacks to triage is full. The recovery room is full. We've got people in the hallway with curtains around them. Yes. And as
1: much as those days are crazy, it's also kind of fun. No. Yeah. Um, yes, exactly. But that's a great reason to rupture somebody's membranes. So an yes. end call birth is beautiful, but if you want to control you some bit of that environment, um that is a good reason to rupture somebody's membranes interestingly enough one of my midwifery faculty when i was in school told me like you only have to taste the amniotic fluid once to realize you never want to do it again
0: agreed <laughs> agreed it yes. tastes like the ocean
1: it tastes like the ocean <laughs> all right <sighs> so I
0: know.
1: <laughs> right so we've talked about amniotomy, we've talked about intervention like um internals as an intervention. What other things do we not always consider interventions in the intrapartum period?
0: Well, you mentioned one earlier about nutrition. Um I definitely think that there are times that a little bit of um oral intake can be helpful and if you are in a place that like literally will not let you feed your patients or give them a little something to drink. Um, sometimes a little dextrose in their IV um, can help as well, but we need sugars like to run our bodies. And if you ran a marathon, you're taking in your goose and your chews and your honey and all these different things, because you need, you, you're working hard and you need those calories I sometimes think that can help a labor as well.
1: I have been very much advocating for patients who are in a long induction of labor situation. So if they're going to have a two-stage induction, side note, two-stage, a ripening stage, and then a induction stage, right? They are going to maybe potentially be in the bed for 24 hours with nothing to eat or drink and no shower. I have very much been advocating for at 18 or 24 hours, I would like to stop the things. I would like to let my patient be off the monitor for an hour. I would like for them to have a shower and a light meal, whatever meal is that time of day, and then allow them to continue with whatever interventions that they need for their induction. It is the humane thing to do is to not starve somebody for 48 hours. Well,
0: I used to come on and take over from the OB residents on Friday afternoons. That was my gig. Every Friday afternoon, I'd come take over while they went to their didactic lessons. And we would laugh because what were Kara's two things that she would do? She would either break water (laughs) or I'd give them a pit break. And that was my big thing as well of a pit break, a shower, or at least wash your face, brush your teeth, change your gown, Um, And a meal, a turkey sandwich um, and milk or something like that. But uh, it really can do so much just for the idea of nutrition and energy, but also, you know, that fourth P, the psyche that we talk about when we talk about the P's of labor psyche is so important. And that refresh
1: can really help. Can we talk about pit breaks for a second? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I have also been doing some literature searching on this um, because the nurses, like, I'm usually the first person they come to and they're like, Missy, I think our patient needs a pit break. And I'll be like, tell me the story. Well, she's on 30th pit. She's been on 30th pit. She has an IUPC. She's not having adequate MVUs. I'm like, okay, great. This is a great patient to take a pit break on, right? So what does take, that? this is an intervention. What does taking a pit break do? Taking a pit break gives the uterus an opportunity to release some of the pitocin that is already bound to receptors on the muscle, correct? Right. Now, when you do it, there are things, there are other interventions that go along with that, right? One of them is Tums. When you give somebody a thousand milligrams of Tums during their pit break, the, the calcium, it's not the actual Tums, it's the calcium, that allows the muscle to reset appropriately. Right. So there's research on this as well. The other intervention is melatonin. It's six milligrams of melatonin and a thousand milligrams of Tums during a pit break to help reset the body. I hadn't heard the melatonin. So this is newer. Yes. yes. There's also an a very, very, very good article, and and as we're talking about it, I want to I'm going to look up and tell you who the author is because I was just blown away when we were talking about when I as I was reading some of the things right um, about taking um, pit breaks, but there's a systematic review and meta-analysis. The primary author is Saccone S A C C O N E. And it's on discontinuing oxytocin in active phase of labor, and um, it's this. They've looked at all of these different studies, right? Um, And in the meta-analysis, in the systematic review, it it ended up the n ended up being about fifteen hundred babies over nine different trials. And um, what what they propose is that in single gestation in vertex presentation, in women undergoing induction, that turning off their Pitocin after five centimeters reduces the risk of cesarean and of uterine tachycystole. And they mean turn it off and leave it off. Yes. And let the body do what it is supposed to do. Fascinating, fascinating, fascinating research about... the idea that
0: once someone is
1: in labor... We have induced their labor, and we can let labor happen, right? Yes, absolutely, awesome. Um, there are also there. Um, there's an an article when I was just talking about melatonin. Um, again, references available. I will put some of these things in um, in our show notes, uh, references, and in our show notes. Um, But the the original research on this oxytocin stop is by CHOPRA, C-H-O-P-R-A, in 2015. So another piece of literature that was interesting, too, is is that when we take a pit break, what I usually say an hour or two hours, and then we start back up. We have a high-dose protocol, so we start it back up at six instead of two. But this article suggested that your pit break should be eight hours, because mm. then you get a complete clearing of the um, the receptors and it's like a, a fresh start. But again, this is the idea of just turning it off and leaving it off. And what does that say, right? Um, well,
0: and to me, do you think, I mean, that's different if someone is two to three centimeters and we've got a really long induction and doing an eight hour pit break, that could make sense. But if someone was eight or nine centimeters and they just need that last little bit and we it's been a long time and we feel like they need a little bit of a break i I can't imagine eight hours at that time but um an hour an hour definitely and i am definitely like you it's more than 30 minutes um but i see a lot of people talking about a 30 minute pit break for me i can't get the tums up there in time um
1: to do that and i want the tums at the beginning of the pit break right Right. But again, this is the whole conversation around interventions that we do in the intrapartum period. So yeah. pit breaks are an intervention. Agreed. So, um, and, and one that can be really useful. I will talk about one more intervention that has to do with additional adjunct medications. And that is what to do with cervical swelling. Yeah. It's generally not ice. I was like, we could put ice on it. And I was like, well, you could, but that, I don't know how you're going to effectively put ice on a sole swollen cervix because the vagina is hot. It's body temperature at best, right? And yeah. hotter than that sometimes as well. So Benadryl. Like 25 or 50, depending on what your ha- patient can handle. And if you've tried the Benadryl trick and their cervix continues to swell, it's probably going to continue. There's something going on. Like your baby's asynclitic, it's OP. It's, if baby's head is continuing to hit up against the cervix, that isn't going to dilate because of a, there's a reason, right? That the, that that cervix isn't going to dilate. So, so you're talking about oral Benadryl. Mm-hmm. Oral Benadryl. Okay. Yeah. So, um, I think I would like to like tie a bow on this conversation with an intervention that is uh, so easy and so effective and so cheap and has very few risks. And that's position change. Yeah. I have some amazing nurses who spin their patients all day long. As soon as they get an epidural, they spin them. If they're going unmedicated, they're spinning them. If they're going unmedicated, they have them out of bed doing all the things. They're doing hip releases. They're doing the three sisters. They're balancing. They're putting them in side-lying. They're putting them in flying cowgirl. They're using fire hydrant. They're doing every position possible. And I will say, babies should figure out which direction they want to come out. They should, but epidural anesthesia absolutely provides some inhibition, like some, it's not, inhibition is the wrong word, um, provides some inability for babies to position themselves the way they should to come out, right? And it's, and it's because of immobility, right? Moms aren't well, moving. It's immobility,
0: but also relaxation of those pelvic muscles, which sometimes lets them like sink down and. Maybe not in the best, but like the musculature, if there was more tone would have been that little, the little barrier to cause them to rotate or something like that.
1: Yep. So it's not the epidural that causes malposition. It's the lack of movement that causes malposition. And so all of the spinning and position changes are an intervention. Yeah. So. I guess for me, the whole recap of this conversation is, is that everything we do, not just Pitocin and not just, you know, side attack or servidal, not just Foley balloon placement, everything that we do in the intrapartum setting is an intervention, whether it's feeding our patients, whether it's, you know, providing pit breaks, whether it's you know, um, position changes or amniotomy, like all of those things are interventions. And I think as you practice, you have to be thinking about those interventions and what their risks are and what the benefits are to your patient and to your baby. Yeah. There it is. I agree.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. And, you know, how you were talking about changing positions so frequently, um, and giving things time to work. I'm a a big believer in trying a position for at least three contractions, you know, and so you'll bargain with your patient sometimes of like, give me at least three contractions in this position. It may be hurting more because you're progressing or, you know, like, let's try this for at least three contractions. Um, That'll usually get you 10 minutes at least. Right. So um, not flipping too much, um, but definitely changing position.
1: Well, Andrea, thank you so much for your amazing podcast idea. If you message me your address, I will send you some delivered swag, um, some engaged podcast pod squad uh, swag for you to have. So thank you so much. Again, like Tara said, if you have ideas for us, we can't wait to hear them. We have a lot of exciting topics coming up this fall, and we can't wait to talk to you again. Take care.